Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm Alberto Ligi, your host from London. Please subscribe to the show if you haven't already, and please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference indeed. Before we kick things off, a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is a mission-first technology company seeking to increase empathy in the world. Using the internet as a source of knowledge, inspiration, and communication, Quilt AI works on issues including climate change, gender equity, and health across the world. They're headquartered in Singapore with teams in London, New York, Zurich, Delhi. And Quilt AI believes that the true value of the internet has yet to be seen. Yes, indeed, the internet has been used to index data, store photos, and conduct e-commerce, but it truly has not yet been used to understand the other. And this is the mission that Quilt AI is on, that of converting the internet into a space of understanding and appreciation. So a big heartfelt thanks to Quilt AI. Today, it really is an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Claire Woodcraft, who is the Executive Director at the Center for Strategic Philanthropy at Judge Business School at the University of Cambridge. They're doing some remarkable work in the world of philanthropy, some great research coming out of there as well. And interestingly, they have a very strong focus on the Global South. And we're going to take a close look at a newly published report published on the 15th of December, if I'm not mistaken, titled Philanthropy and COVID-19. Is the North-South power balance finally shifting? We're going to be looking at that question. We're going to be looking at a lot of interesting topics regarding the world of philanthropy. And without further ado, Claire, welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you, Alberto. Absolutely delighted to be here. Well, it's great to have you on the show. So why don't we kick off by finding out a little bit about the Center for Strategic Philanthropy. What's it all about? Absolutely. So we were set up, formally launched in June of this year. Uh, establishment started a little bit earlier just as COVID hit. So it's been a very interesting time since the beginning. But we were established as a center that's going to have three core pillars of activity. We are first and foremost a research center. So looking at research on philanthropy, trying to fill some of those evidence gaps in mm -hmm. the market, really understand what's happening in our sector, who's doing what, how, where, and when. The second pillar of activity is our executive education program. So that will be constructing in, in the months to come and hopefully launching that in early 2021, really trying to help practitioners understand best practice, share best practice. And finally, we want to be a, a convening platform so that we can bring uh, diverse voices to this discussion. But I should also add, perhaps most importantly, we are focused on emerging markets. Mm -hmm. So our core focus is on three areas, Middle East, Africa, and Southeast Asia. And we feel that that kind of distinguishes us from other centers because our founder, indeed his rationale for setting up the center, was that there wasn't enough research on those core markets. So whilst we have some really well-established centers looking at North American philanthropy or European philanthropy, our founder, Badajafa, really felt that there was a gap here. So the essence of our work is to try and fill that gap in those three core emerging markets. Great. And how did it come about then? So tell me a little bit about the, the founder and how the whole thinking evolved to, to make the center a reality. So Badr Jafar is an Emirati who's been quite active in this space for, for a long time now. 
He was one of the people that we used to invite regularly to our annual philanthropy summit when I was running Emirates Foundation. Okay. And he's one of the people that has this, uh, what I what I personally call an, an enterprise-based approach to philanthropy, which very much replicates the kind of philosophy that we had when I was working at Shell Foundation, which is to say that we can do things more entrepreneurially. If we really want to create impact at scale, we have to think about innovation. We have to think more in, in the, with a private sector type mentality of how we create social value at scale. So he's a Cambridge grad himself. He'd been in discussion with Cambridge for some time about establishing a dedicated center because, as I said, he saw these gaps in the market. He did some initial market mapping and realized there just simply wasn't a huge amount of information or research or data on what's happening in the Middle East, Africa or Southeast Asia. So that was really his vision behind it and and something that I obviously as the executive director very much support and uphold is the idea that we might also, by filling the gaps in terms of research and data, bring a, a more powerful voice to the global south, to those markets, such that when we talk about global development discourse, when we talk about the potential role of philanthropy in filling some of the SDG funding gaps, mm-hmm. that those uh, local philanthropists, up-and-coming philanthropists can be heard and can influence where perhaps historically you had a much greater influence from the global north. And, and also uh, part of his fundamental thinking was that in these markets, you're seeing a huge growth in philanthropy. So we know that philanthropy is growing everywhere, but particularly in growth markets where you have the maturation of capital markets and family offices and young second generation philanthropists keen now to disperse this capital, but to do it differently. So whereas historically the first generation may have looked at setting up a foundation, we know that in these markets increasingly we're seeing young philanthropists who want to do it differently, who want to create a social enterprise, who want to set up an impact fund. So really the center is trying to play to that audience to say, okay, how can we help these up and coming new philanthropists with their new thinking, often more entrepreneurial, more innovative? How can we help them to deliver more impact at scale and and to do so collaboratively, to do so as a peer cohort and thus create increasing influence from those game changes to the, the global discourse around philanthropy. That's fascinating. And so you mentioned that sort of dichotomy between the global north and, and the global south and uh, also someone I know from Dahlberg Advisors, Edwin Macharia, who called it the global east because you also have a lot of stuff <laughs> going on going on out there. How do you engage with philanthropists, particularly those younger philanthropists who are out there? Are they necessarily coming through the Cambridge channel at all, or is it completely disconnected from that? How, how do you engage with those folks? So it's been very interesting since we formally launched in June, the kind of responses that we've had and, and where that interest uh, has come from. And, you know, I think there is an element of philanthropy being something of a village in that lots of people know each other well. Of course, that that community is expanding with these new philanthropists. But I've been quite surprised at how many uh, philanthropists have reached out to us from those markets saying, thank goodness, finally, we have a dedicated center for our philanthropy. So mm-hmm. not Withstanding the fact that we are, of course, based inside Cambridge in the UK, it's been interesting that the the message around the importance of emerging markets has really resonated. And we have had people from those markets getting in touch with us directly. Of course, also wonderfully 
inside this amazing community that is Cambridge University, we've had a lot of interest from others working on the SDGs or looking at emerging markets more broadly. You have, of course, various tracts of research activity in the university looking at social innovation and enterprise and development. But it was really interesting to see how people found us. I mean, I was, I guess, part of me was thinking we would have to go out there and find them. But we got a lot of interest coming from the market, coming from the field, from practitioners saying, we need this. We're so happy that you exist. How can we work together? And even, you know, when we put out the message that our core markets for now are Middle East, Africa and Southeast Asia, we started to get a lot of interest, for example, from Brazil, uh, obviously from China and India, larger markets. And, and of course, we don't want to turn anyone away. But, you know, it was interesting that we were sort of saying to people, we're we're not quite ready for your markets yet because they're huge, uh, as are the ones we've already chosen. But it was really surprising to see that clearly there is a gap around a voice for philanthropy from emerging markets, from growth markets. And clearly, that's where future capital is going to come from. That's excellent. And so when somebody reaches out to you from uh, Southeast Asia, for instance, and they, they're passionate about trying to launch something philanthropic and doing something philanthropic, uh, they'll tap on your shoulder and they'll say, look, do you have any insight on how I should do X, Y, or Z? Or can you guide me in the right direction for any research papers? Or can you put me in touch with my peers? Or what what are those conversations, if there is a way of generalizing, what do they, what do they look like? What do they sound like? Yeah, so I love this adage of, you know, you've seen one foundation, you've seen one foundation. So obviously, there is massive heterogeneity in our sector. However, I think that the commonality for me, certainly when people get in touch, is is just the, the C word, collaboration, collaboration, collaboration. So anybody that comes our way says, look, we're doing philanthropy in these markets, I, I just say yes before they even ask the question. <laughs> uh, and then that usually translates into an initial conversation where we want to hear what are they doing. And they want to hear what we can do to help them. And that's guiding our mission because obviously we're still relatively new. We're still building our strategy. We did a lot of work before the formal establishment of the center, but we are still absolutely uh, keen that this be a market-based initiative, that we want to respond to the gaps in the market. So it's really about, irrespective of where that individual or institution comes from, we want to listen to them. So what are you doing in your market? What are the challenges around philanthropy? And that can then for us translate into building our research portfolio so that we can help them by providing more data on that particular mm-hmm. area. Or if it's a competence gap, we can factor that into our executive education program that we're building. Right. And so those conversations are really, really helpful as contributing to our market mapping kind of exercise. But for us, really, it's just to push collaboration. You know, we really want to see that philanthropists notoriously criticized for not working collaboratively enough are encouraged to do so more and we think that that's our role really bringing practitioners and funders together so that we can have more co-finance more partnerships more peer learning and more sharing of best practice because I think in my personal experience I was a practitioner for for you know nearly 20 years and and I do feel that often there's a lot of reinventing the wheel because those infrastructures and networks in emerging markets are are not as strong as they are elsewhere and hence you don't have the communication and the connectivity so I think that's really a powerful role for us to play because when you look at these markets as diverse as they are and you know I was counting the other day I think if you look at our region we're in something like 92 countries with over 2 billion people so this is a huge remit that we've chosen for ourselves and yet there is systematic commonality around the challenges for, for philanthropists in all of those markets, and be it the grant makers or the grantees. 
Mm. And presumably, the more conversations you have, the more you enrich your own knowledge base as well. Absolutely, absolutely. So obviously, we are uh, a formal academic research center. So we are, uh, as we speak, you know, in the process of commissioning uh, research, which will be sort of longer term academic understandings of what's going on. But we've also the amount of interest and the gravity of the situation with COVID also pushed us into kickstarting an initial industry report, almost like a white paper mm -hmm. on how philanthropy was responding to COVID-19. So that's become a core part of our work and something that started out Uh, as COVID hit with just a kind of, hey, let's let's find out what's going on out there. Uh, just an initial, you know, sort of uh, uh, sort of quick and dirty exercise to find out who was doing what. And it's t it's morphed into something much bigger as we discovered that there was so much to be said, so much to be heard, so much to be shared that actually aligned with a lot of the calls for a paradigm shift that we had seen before COVID. So we took the COVID-19 pandemic as an opportunity to essentially launch a natural experiment okay. and figure out if all of those things we've called for historically with philanthropy, and you know, I'm not saying anything unique or new here, that calling for long-term funding, calling for unrestricted capital, calling for more collaboration, calling for more accountability, calling for more focus, calling for less complex grant making, all of those things we've been calling for for decades, we wanted to see Are those things actually happening now because of COVID, because of the gravity of the situation, because you have a lot of grantees, social purpose organizations on the ground that just need to get the job done? Mm. Um, so that that exercise, to go back to your question, has been a kind of unexpected, super fast learning curve around creating some initial data and understanding of what's happening in our emerging markets. What do your uh, preliminary findings tell you? So we, we kind of set out with the premise that the pandemic would trigger more flexibility in terms of global giving into these markets. And we found that was the case. But what we also found was that grant recipients in our markets are increasingly emboldened to speak out about what they perceive as best practice. Mm -hmm. So we know there's a huge challenge in these organizations getting access to unrestricted funding to funding for core costs, to um, funding for overheads. And we found that whereas historically they might not have been so bold as to demand that with COVID and the impact that was having in real terms on the ground, there was a lot more vocal calls for enough of this restricted funding. We just need to get capital to market. We just need to be able to cover people's salaries. We just need to be able to keep this organization alive, keep it resilient even beyond COVID. And on the part of grant makers, a lot more understanding, uh, a lot quicker disbursement, a lot of perhaps waiving of conditions, not necessarily for the longer term, but some initial, okay, we understand we need to get this money to market. And then a secondary outcome of that was we found intra-regional collaboration. So South-South, if you like, collaboration mm -hmm. really growing. So foundations that historically might have only looked to work with their global counterparts now looking to work intra-regionally or to work with local governments. Uh, local grantees that historically might have been very dependent on Global North funding sources saying, okay, if it's going to take too long to get money from the North, let's just crowdfund it ourselves within our own community. So again, quite a lot of interesting trends that relate to how these communities are trying to become more resilient, uh, more sustainable, but more intra-regionally integrated. And that's a very interesting shift in the power dynamic that this is just a very 
initial um, foray into this area, but it's something that we think will absolutely feed into our longer term research agenda of how the global south, global north power dynamic impacts on philanthropy and emerging markets. Great. Sounds like fascinating research. And like any great research, you need great minds to be able to drive it forward. Here's a question for you. Is there much by way of philanthropy getting into those business studies, those management studies? So you're a judge business school. You have loads of students doing their MBAs and, and their PhDs in management and all of that. Are you finding an increasing interest in philanthropy, strategic philanthropy, and how that all sort of gels with, with more traditional MBA topics? Sure. So, I mean, you will know this well. I mean, it's, it's what I call the kind of the impact continuum and this new increasingly hybrid model. So whilst we are the only dedicated center for philanthropy inside Cambridge University, uh, as you will know, you know, as, as business, as commercial entities understand that they need to do more to manage their negative externalities, their negative impact on their communities, of course, increasingly, they are interested in, in social investment more broadly, or as perhaps as we used to call it to CSR. Mm -hmm. So I think that market trend whereby businesses understand that you can no longer focus simply on the stakeholder base of your clients or your shareholders, you actually now need to work with the entirety of your stakeholder base with communities, with civil society who are impacted by your commercial operations. Those businesses are having a real wake up call around the need to do to do something, not necessarily more philanthropy, but to do something, to engage, to to manage uh, and to support in creating social value. I mean, that's what I call it, social value creation. Mm. So I think that market trend, and not just now, inevitably over the last, I would say, probably 10 or 15 years, has created a huge amount of interest in philanthropy from business school students, from businesses, from professors who are in this space, you know, whereas when I did my master's in development a mm. long time ago, uh, uh, it was the case if you either did development or you did your MBA, you know, they were really quite distinct. And I think now there has been a huge merging of those ideas around how, how do you create social value at scale? It's not so different from how you create commercial value at scale. And it's underpinned by sustainability, the broader sustainability agenda. So I think, yes, there is inevitably now a, a merging of those two communities. So people who are interested in creating social impact, but also people who are interested in creating a viable, sustainable, ethical business. Uh, and I think that that um, coming together was an inevitability. And also, of course, means that I, I uh, you know, I'm not a I'm not a business school professor, but um, I believe that nowadays the average business school student really wants to know more about this space. And it's certainly something that we're seeing at the center, you know, and and I've seen historically in my career, young people coming to me saying, hey, I've got an MBA, you know, maybe formerly I might have been interested in banking. Now I really want to work with the foundation. Yeah. So I think that's a trend that's been happening for some time. No, that's a great trend. And I see that as well. If I ever give a lecture at a university and to MBA students, it used to be you know, half the class would go into investment banking, the other half into management consulting as that, and that was it. Exactly. maybe some entrepreneurs. Uh, but now there's just so many people coming up and saying, you know, how do I get into impact investing or how do I get into social entrepreneurship or how do I get into the foundations yeah. world, which I think is great. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's something that is not new. When I was working at Shell Foundation in, in 2010, I mean, Shell Foundation was one of the first vocal champions of what we called at the time enterprise-based philanthropy. It's now kind of referred to as venture philanthropy. But I think that that is the what underpins it is taking this entrepreneurial approach. So instead of 
what historically we might have done in terms of creating often quite large administrative bureaucratic engines for doing philanthropy of how do we get much more entrepreneurial? How do we get much more innovative? How do we identify gaps in the market and create solutions that are actually needed and that are based on market data, based on evidence, and then produce a solution that is scalable and sustainable rather than historically when we tended to have this kind of short-term project-based mindset, you know, a short-term intervention with a finite amount of capital uh, in the belief that that could create a change. And often that did create change, but it was really at the level of uh, a finite community. And what people are looking for now is, of course, system change, much wider, scalable change, given the enormity of, of the SDGs. And now, of course, when you add COVID-19 to that, you know, our work is, is really cut out for us. So I think, again, that's where the, the, the mindset of entrepreneurialism is really bridging the gap between philanthropists and businesses. Yeah. Regarding businesses, and you, I think you set the context quite nicely, are you finding that in addition to philanthropists in the global south, you're also having corporates, social enterprise, possibly even multifamily offices approaching you as well saying, look, we are advising some clients or we are trying to do something for our corporate side of things. Can you give us a nudge? Can you give us a hand? Yeah, absolutely. So in particular, I think financial institutions, um, again, this is not a particularly new phenomenon. You've had some of, um, some of the global banks have been interested in this space for some time now. UBS has a sort of annual event on philanthropy, JP Morgan and various others, Coots that have had, uh, dedicated teams for philanthropy. But we've certainly seen that at the center of financial advisors coming to us saying their clients, high net worth family offices, are interested in portfolio-wide impact. So mm -hmm. uh, gone are the days when you're just looking at uh, a financial return that increasingly family offices are looking to have part of their portfolio dedicated to social impact. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's all smooth sailing and that we're suddenly going to see a, a significant increase in capital coming into this space. But it does mean, I think, that there is a growing understanding on the part of commercial entities that they have to play a role in creating social impact. You know, the, the days of thinking that's the job of the UN or the World Bank are over. And I think we welcome that. We welcome the idea of working with the whole ecosystem. My own personal experience of working in, in both development and then subsequently in philanthropy is that no one actor alone can create long-term change. You can't fix a community-wide problem or a socioeconomic issue alone. It has to be a collaboration between and, and, you know, equally donor organizations can't do it alone. The World Bank can't do everything alone. So it has to be a collaboration between the private sector, the government, and the third sector, our sector, coming together. And I think whereas, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, we had to, um, we really had to preach that. Now it's kind of a natural phenomenon. And there's a much greater understanding of the role of commercial capital in creating social value. That's great. How do you convene all of these various diverse interested parties that are coming up to you for a bit of insight? What, what is your thinking in terms of how best the center can uh, leverage its knowledge base and expertise to create these uh, spaces for really robust exchanges of ideas and uh, creative thinking? So again, for us, it's really very organic and market-based. So uh, we have a plan for an annual conference and we are, but we are going where the demand uh, comes from. So we've had banks ask us to do webinars. We have a planned a series of webinars coming up with um, Family Office Network in, in the Middle East, Tarawat. We have a Talking Philanthropy Asia conference coming up next year in May out of Singapore. 
So we're really trying to find opportunities where we know there is demand. You know, we don't want to create initiatives in a, in a vacuum. We want to be market led. So what we're trying to do is respond to those invitations to create uh, fora where they're most needed. And I think thus far, if you think, you know, we're still very young as a center, we have actually been um, pretty highly engaged and we have already a series of events uh, lined up, which I, I don't know, we were necessarily expecting that to happen. Uh-huh. Now you say young center, relatively speaking, where are you looking to head to? If, if we're looking at the sustainable development goals in 2030, which is not that far away, where is it that you'd love for the center to be in, in 10 years time? What, what, would, what would success look like? So I think first and foremost, of course, we want to fill the gaps, the research gaps. So I would love for in 10 years time for us to have a much better understanding of the nature of philanthropy in emerging markets, to have really robust data on sectoral interventions, on total capital coming to market, who are the key actors. And then I would also love to have a really robust, documented best practice, approach to best practice that, that you know, many of us have worked in the sector for a long time believe that there are certain practices that work better than others, but we still don't have enough evidence to prove that that's the case. One of the things that we were studying with our COVID-19 report was the issue around unrestricted funding versus restricted. And we know there's a huge demand for core costs, for operational funding, for overheads that just doesn't happen at the moment. But again, do we have enough evidence to prove, to show that that is best practice? So that's what I'd like to see in 10 years' time, is that we really have a, a strong bank of data and knowledge and peer learning and sharing that, that shows us, one, exactly what is happening in these emerging markets in philanthropy, and two, how can we best maximize impact? Because ultimately, that's what our center is about. Ultimately, I think that's what everybody who's in philanthropy is about. How do you maximize impact? And and historically, sometimes I think we've lost a little bit of um, focus on that. You know, maybe we've got caught up in, in, uh, in the processes rather than kind of the philosophy. And I think... Uh, that, that's really important. So if we as a center can also help drive that, that impact has to remain front and foremost, and that we have to be uh, accountable to each other. You know, our sector has been accused of opacity for a long time. And I think that's a shame because I think there's mostly hugely well-intentioned people in this sector. But the reality is that data is not shared as much as it should be. Uh, and I think often we fear, we fear disclosing failure in our sector because it is such a, in a way, a value-laden approach to driving socioeconomic change. And we feel the burden of this really has to work. And when it doesn't work, we fear disclosing that. And I really hope that we can help change that mindset as well and encourage philanthropists to believe that it's okay if something about your program didn't work. Let's acknowledge that. Let's share the learning so that we can improve next time round, so that we can learn from each other's mistakes and not reinvent the wheel. And for us, because we are focused on up and coming young philanthropists from emerging markets, that's particularly important. You know, these are young people coming with new pools of philanthropic capital. We want them to know what happened historically, what worked and what didn't, so that when they deploy their capital, it can be done in an entrepreneurial, innovative way that we know is going to maximize impact. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like you're enjoying your job. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get into this? You see, I know you're, you're heading up the Emirati Foundation. You were at Shell before. Give us a little bit of an overview of your uh, of your journey thus far, how did you end up where you are today? Yeah, so I've always been um, always been a bit of a 
a champion of uh, of uh, justice. I've always, from a very young age, I've always uh, had this idea that um, change is a good thing, and that if you see something in society that doesn't seem to be working, you should be very active about trying to fix it. Yeah. Um, so I had that from a very early age, and then, uh, but it was equally passionate about languages. So that's kind of my academic background is is on one the communication side, languages, learning languages. I, I'm an Arabist, and I was raised in Wales, where I was taught to speak Welsh. Uh, so I've always had that fascination of the power of language to build communication across large communities. Uh, but secondly, also this idea of how do you create social change and how do you challenge uh, injustice and how do you ensure a fairer, um, more equitably uh, constructed universe, if you like, um, which then led to me doing a master's in, in development. And then I went and worked uh, pretty much entirely in emerging markets, mainly in the Middle East, but also to some extent in Africa on looking at. So, so if you want to create change, system change, if you want to create more socioeconomic value, how do you do it? Is it through the international development community, the kind of traditional, the NGOs, and then the international development agencies, UN agencies, etc.? Is it through private capital within a, a CSR, social investment construct? Hmm. Is it with philanthropic capital, looking at foundations, or is it with governments? And, and needless to say, I discovered, that, of course, it's all of the above, you know, that you have to take an ecosystem-wide approach. So so I've ended up working with all of those entities. I've worked with uh, NGOs. I've worked with the international development community. I've worked with the private sector uh, and also more latterly with foundations. And, and yet I still, after all of that experience, still had a frustration that we are not consistently sharing what works and what doesn't. We are not consistently sharing best practice. We are not consistently sharing data as I said before, we're still scared of full openness and accountability around things that didn't work, where we failed. And I really think that for me, therefore, this job is like the perfect culmination of that experience of being able to say, okay, no longer, it's no longer my opinion around what works and what doesn't. Here is real evidence and, and data to show what works and what doesn't. And here is an opportunity for us to do this together because no one can create socioeconomic systemic outcomes alone. Um, so I think in, in a way this, this job and the center kind of for me is, is, uh, is the perfect combination of bringing my practitioner experience, marrying that with the wonderful academics that I get the chance to work with, who of course take a, a much more theoretical approach to that, but a much more evidence-based approach. Um, but also then reaching out to people working in emerging markets and bringing their voice on board as well so that you can have a collective discussion around how we can do this better. The pandemic has has shown yet again uh, that working in isolation when you're trying to address some of these wicked problems just simply doesn't work. We need to work together. And, and that's always been my philosophy and, and, and very much uh, what has guided my career. Well, I'm a bit envious because I think you've had a really <laughs> wonderful trajectory there. And uh... And going from the foundations and being a practitioner and now within an academic setting of such uh, high standing, it, it must be incredibly rewarding. And I think it's great. Thank you. Yes, it is. I mean, I have to say I was not familiar with Cambridge University. As, as you and I discussed, we're both LSE graduates. But um, but for anybody who hasn't visited Cambridge, either the town or the university, you know, please do. It is just the most inspiring place in terms of just the caliber of the discussions of the people, of the knowledge, of the history. I mean, it's it's a real privilege to be here. If somebody wants to find out a little bit more about the center or about your executive education programs or 
or your knowledge base, what's the best way of getting in touch with you or, or with your team? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we are very active on Twitter. You can go, of course, just straight to the web and Google the Center for Strategic Philanthropy at Cambridge University and you'll come straight to our website. Or you can go to us on Twitter or uh, myself on Twitter. So um, feel free to reach out to us via Twitter or, or via the website directly. All of those. Uh, what's your Twitter? What's your Twitter handle? So my Twitter handle is at C Woodcraft and uh, our CSP handle at Cambridge CSP. And we would love to have more followers. As I said, we're, we're still early days. So please, anybody who's interested in philanthropy and who wants to share their experience or suggest areas of research, then uh, we, we would love to have that input. Great. And tell me, before we wrap things up, what's the uh, key takeaway for our listeners? What's the one thing you'd love for them to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? So I think it's really about ensuring that good intentions translate into impact. You know, throughout my career, I have seen so many well-meaning initiatives, individuals, institutions that really wanted to create positive social change, um, but unfortunately didn't manage to create it in a sustainable format. I think we really need to look at the evidence around what works and what doesn't. So before rushing in to create a program or an intervention, really try to look at who's already working in that space and collaborate. I think the chances of creating impact at scale are much higher if you do it in that way. And that's not to say that people shouldn't bring their passion to this space, because clearly we need that too. But I just think that intentions need to be matched by evidence. Excellent. Yeah, well, here's to uh, ensuring intentions lead to, uh, to real impact, which would be great. Claire Woodcraft, Executive Director at the Center for Strategic Philanthropy at Judge Business School at the University of Cambridge. It's been an absolute pleasure hosting you on the show today. And to our listeners, thank you so much, as always, for tuning in, for following on LinkedIn, for telling your friends and family. It makes a huge difference indeed. Claire, it was great having you on the show, and I wish you continued success with this new evolving venture in the strategic philanthropy space. Thank you so much, Alberto. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. Mm-hmm.